Take your Bibles and turn again to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, we'll be looking at verses 31 to 37 this morning. This is our final time in in Matthew 5 for this year. Uh, Bobby will be preaching uh, next Sunday, uh, and then we'll go into our Advent series on December the 3rd. So that'll, of course, take us us into the new year, which will uh, do a a brief series on worship. Uh, 2024 is our year of worship. That's when we'll focus. That'll be sort of our... Our, our church focus on worship. We'll do other things, of course, but that's that's the that's the the focus is uh, worship, outreach, community. Sort of our three pillars of Westminster Presbyterian Church. This past year, we stepped out of that uh, trio and did just a, a year of vision. As you know, we've been talking a lot about that. But uh, in 24, we'll be talking a lot about worship, uh, and then by February, we'll be back in, in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in the middle of a three-part sermon. Uh, This is part two this morning, the true meaning of the law. Uh, Jesus' refrain he uses a lot in this section, as you know. You have heard that it was said, but I say. Not that you have read that it was written by the law and the prophets, that you heard that it was said. In other words, you've heard the interpretation of what Moses said as this, but I now correct that interpretation to tell you that the law actually means this, whatever the topic may be. Jesus is giving us the correct interpretation. Last Sunday, it was do not murder and do not commit adultery, which, yes, we must not do those actions, but Jesus is also saying, I don't just want the outward obedience, I want your heart. And all the ways that don't just ask what can I do and not violate this, but what can I do to bring the most glory to God? And now in our passage this morning, we're we're thinking along those same lines, but it's Today, it's the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of our speech, and we'll do underneath each of those points what we did last Sunday. It's the the true explanation of the command, so Jesus corrects the the wrong explanation, and then the true application of the command. Uh, And we'll close, uh, again, by doing what we did last week, is how do do each of these commands point us to Christ, Uh, ultimately where we find the perfect fulfillment of the law, as Jesus already says that he is, and how he intends to fulfill that in us as well. With that in mind, let me read for us Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, would you teach us from your word now that we would behold wondrous things from it? Lord, would you help us understand these words and not just that it would affect our behavior, but also our hearts? It would cause us to love you more. It would cause us to love one another more and that you would be glorified in it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There was once a young boy who lied to his mother. 
Late one evening, he snuck downstairs and grabbed two boxes of Girl Scout cookies and proceeded to take them up to his bedroom. He ate half a roll of Thin Mints and half a tray of Samoas, by far the two best Girl Scout cookies that God ever created, and I won't hear otherwise. He knew that what he had done was wrong because the kitchen had been closed and he'd already brushed his teeth, not to mention that the amount of cookies that he ate would not have been allowed under any circumstances. Nevertheless, he enjoyed every bite and then went to sleep. The following morning, the boy's mother came to wake him up for school and upon doing so, discovered a multitude of cookie crumbs in his bed. And so the interrogation began. The boy, despite the indisputable evidence, stuck to his story that it must have been his older brother or younger sister who had done this. The mother, undeterred by the obviously false story that she had been told, gave him a chance to come clean and tell the truth. He did not take such an opportunity. He stuck to his story, and this proved to be a bad idea. The discipline came swiftly. Discipline for violating the food policy of not eating cookies in bed, obviously, but also now for the discipline for lying. Not a very smart young boy indeed. I wonder whatever happened to him. Why is it that we lie? Why do we lie? Why do we tell things that are not true? Well, sometimes it's to get out of punishment, isn't it? If I tell the truth, I'll be found out, and I will not like the consequences. So we fabricate. We tell a lie. Sometimes we do this in order to flatter someone. You really do not think the, out, the outfit is wonderful and beautiful, yet you say it anyway because you want them to feel good about you and think well of you. Sometimes we lie because we want to manipulate someone for our own ends. We tell a half-truth. We, it's, it's misleading. <laughs> it's kind of true, or I'm going to say it in a vague way to, well, when confronted, I could sort of play both sides if I had to. Is lying a problem in our culture? What do you think? It's believed that half of all college applications contain some lie about job history, school accomplishments, or GPA. 70% of college students claim that they regularly cheat on tests and assignments. 25% of job applications, it's believed, contain some lie or fabrication. We live in a world of spin, don't we? Everything is spin. Bill O'Reilly has made a career, hasn't he, about the no-spin zone. Come to the no-spin zone, he says, and you will get the raw, unaltered truth. Don't know if that's true, but he has certainly sold that well, hasn't he? Spin is everywhere. It's in politics. It's in the church. It's in everyday life. The Internet, unfortunately, has made this much worse. The proliferation of fake news, as we call it. You, you're not going to ever have to answer to anyone for the fake news that you post on your social media account. It even makes its way into the church. We intentionally misrepresent someone else's viewpoint in order to discredit them or to promote fear that that group over there is really trying to bring us all down. Jesus is saying in this passage, your yes should be yes and your no should be no. We looked at this from the book of James back over the summer, didn't we? Yes, it's about don't make promises you can't keep, but say what you mean and mean what you say. It's a matter of integrity, and the Pharisees were suggesting, well, if you use a particular formula, you, you'll have to keep your word. If you don't use that formula, oh, it's no big deal. You can sort of wiggle out of that. Christians, we must never be that way, shouldn't we? As one commentator said, the cause of truth is always more important than its consequences. We must be honest. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, as we've said, each of the last couple of sermons, 
It's as if Jesus is saying, you have heard that you can do this in your own strength, but I say unto you that you can't. You need the grace of Jesus Christ. You have heard that it was said that the law is within your reach, and I'm telling you that it's not within your reach. You need the grace of Christ to live as he has called you to. There is a deeper meaning than the Pharisees realize. The Pharisees are trying to tell you what's the least you can do and still be allegedly obedient. Jesus is saying, here's the most you can do to glorify God. When we start asking where the line is that I can't cross, we're already in the wrong mindset and frame of mind. What's the most I can do for him? So in our two sections, the first, we might paraphrase it this way. You have heard that it was said that divorce is not a big deal and that marriage ought to be entered into and exited with, quite, with, with great ease, even for minor infractions. But I'm saying unto you that marriage is extremely important, and the bond between a man and a wife is to never be separated. That's its intention. Secondly, you have heard that it was said that people ought to take your word seriously, but only to varying degrees. Jesus says, but I say unto you that your word is your bond, and it's also a reflection upon God himself. A bit of a long introduction, but I think, a, a, I hope anyway, a helpful setup to number one is the sanctity of marriage. It should be said from the outset, Westminster, that these two verses do not give us the sum total of what the Bible teaches about divorce or marriage. And this sermon is not seeking to give a full biblical theological understanding of the topic. We're trying to get at what, why does Jesus mention this here? It fits with the rest of the issues that he brings up, which is this. It's warning. It is a warning unto us. It's not meant to ask, as, as I posed the question I posed last Sunday, what does it mean to murder someone? Well, I guess we need to get into what about soldiers and what about just war theory and what about capital punishment? That's missing the point. It's about your heart. And so for us here, we are going to talk about divorce, but not so that we can sort of parse out every possible biblical way that divorce would be allowed. That's not the intention of the sermon. What is the heart behind all this? And why does Jesus bring it up? In order to do that, we need to look at one additional passage, Matthew 19, where Jesus elaborates on the point that he is making here. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3, says, The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered this way, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate." And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to, to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. What are the Pharisees preoccupied with? Tell me all the grounds. Jesus, tell me all the different ways that I can divorce my wife, is what the Pharisees are asking. And Jesus doesn't answer the question. He diverts them back to the intention of marriage in the first place, which is what? The husband leaves his father and mother, and he holds fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. 
of such a bond that the intention is that it would never be ripped apart. And if it is, there's going to be consequences for that, is what he's saying here. He doesn't get down into the mud, if you will, of, if you will, of all the specifics here. I'm going to take you back to what this was intended to be anyway. You see, the Pharisees, it's a grand missing of the point, isn't it? Well, then why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce? And Jesus says, that wasn't a command. That was a concession because of your sinfulness. He allowed you to do this, but that's not the way it was intended to be. What are the Pharisees doing? If you read the, the, the rabbis and their instruction to the people, even for a poorly made dinner, it would have been grounds for a divorce. Jesus is saying this is nonsense. That is not what this is meant to be. Why are you asking such a question, in other words? You, you don't even understand what this institution is about, he suggests. Divorce is not permissible for any reason you happen to come up with. And he attributes this to the hardness of people's heart. And that's right. It's not this way from the beginning, Jesus says. Additionally, what they were doing was forcing the, the woman that they had just divorced, if she was to remarry, it would be a committing of adultery. Because it didn't happen for the biblical allowance that God had given. And Jesus says in this passage is what? Sexual immorality. That is a true breaking of this bond. Old Testament law said somebody committed adultery, then they got the death penalty. It appears by the New Testament that particular error was not practiced. That particular punishment was not practiced. But the divorced, the offended spouse could act as if the offending spouse had died and they were free to go and remarry again. We can be annoyed at the Pharisees, and yet I don't think in the main we are all that different from them. Because when the, when the topic of divorce comes up, we typically ask similar questions, don't we? We can do just what the Pharisees did. We're preoccupied with the grounds. Tell me all the ways I can get out of this, Pastor. Can we go down that road for a moment? What is the purpose and meaning of marriage? We often don't ask such a question. I'm not going to go into all the grounds this morning. Again, I think that's outside of the scope of the sermon. However, if I can offer one aside, it would be this. I commend to you two different position papers. The PCA, our denomination, write, has written a variety of position papers. Go on to Google, type PCA position papers, and a huge index pops up, okay? So you can find it very easily. Two of them. One written about 25 years ago on divorce and remarriage. One written about two years ago on domestic abuse. Now, that may seem to be taking you in a wrong road. There is a section of it on divorce and remarriage, which I think, I don't agree with everything in the two papers, but both very good resources for this particular topic that we're talking about this morning. Jesus wants the Pharisees, but more specifically his disciples, to ask different questions. Don't ask how you can get out of this. How can you go deeper into this marriage that you have? How can you love and cherish your spouse? How does Christ love the church? The most often used illustration for marriage anyway. How can I seek to offer forgiveness? How can I seek reconciliation with my spouse? So the second part is the true application of the command. But let's be honest about something. 
There is almost no unhappiness as deep as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage. When things are not going well between you and your spouse, life is very difficult, isn't it? Everything else in your life can be going great, but if things are miserable at home, you walk out into the world with significant anxiety and struggle. Conversely, if things are going really well at home and things seem to be strong between you and your spouse, everything would be falling apart in your life and you can walk out there in confidence because you feel so loved and supported by your spouse. Anytime this particular passage comes up, you're in a, in a room of this size, no doubt several things are true. One, divorce has impacted every single one of us in some way. Perhaps you've been divorced. Perhaps you're thinking about getting divorced. Perhaps your parents were divorced or your children were divorced or a dear friend maybe right now is going through a divorce and you're trying to minister to them in the midst of it. Some of you hear this topic and you're just a curious spectator. It hasn't really impacted you so deeply, but you're wondering what the pastor might say about it. Others of us, this is difficult. And I want to let you know that even if your divorce that you had is unbiblical, that is not in some way the unforgivable sin. There is grace and there is mercy from God. There is forgiveness that is offered unto you. Do not despair. And yet, we've got to interact with what is Jesus doing here? He is suggesting to his disciples, and I feel safe to say he's suggesting to us, we don't take marriage seriously enough. We don't take the fact that this is meant to be a permanent, forever bond in the way that we are supposed to take it. We don't treat ourselves that way. We don't treat our spouse that way. We just, where's my out? Where's the clause? What's the lawyer I can consult? Where's the, oh, okay, right here, this is where I can get out of this. And Jesus is saying, no, that's, that's the wrong spirit and motivation here. He's admonishing his disciples and admonishing us and, and giving us a warning. You know, believe it or not, Jesus' culture was just as permissive about divorce as our culture is permissive. You know, sometimes the church is criticized and probably fairly criticized for speaking so loudly and clearly against certain sins and being quiet about others. This would be one such sin. But what principles can we take away? What are the positive things that can be implied in terms of an application here? Your marriage is really important. It's really important. It's important as it relates to Westminster. It's important for the, the security and vitality of your children and your grandchildren. It's important for the world in which we live. I don't have to convince you, I wouldn't think, that the, that the, the attack on the family has been a tremendous uh, uh, ill to our world, not a help in any way. And this passage is pr- trying to impress that on us and give a corrective to it. Jesus recognizes and Scripture teaches that it's sexual immorality, yes, that can break this bond apart but it's meant to be a permanent thing. I do know that Paul adds another biblical ground. I said I wasn't going to get into this, but I think I ought to at least mention it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says that willful desertion of an unbelieving spouse away from a believing spouse would be another ground for divorce. What that all means, well, we'll handle that in a different venue, okay? There's, There's not space for that in this sermon. 
But again, it's, it's, it, it is the intention. It's always good to remind ourselves, Westminster, of the particular vows and covenants that we make in life. The book of church order tells us anytime there's a baptism, we need to recall our own baptism. Anytime you go to a wedding, you need to recall your own wedding. You need to recall the fact that you made those vows that were up there. You promised to your spouse, I am with you to the end, to have and to hold, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. Yes, you know, there's the easy parts of that, and there's, there's a very difficult parts of that. But what about the times when they aren't so lovable? Yes, those are there. What about the times when they don't really deserve that love and tender care? That's true. There are times that you most certainly do not either. How do we strengthen this? How do we just not bear through it? How do we actually nurture and foster this marriage that we are in? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't he, that to not keep a record of wrongs. I think, the, I think there's also an implication there, don't keep a record of rights either. Like, well, I did all these wonderful things over here. What have you done in the last two weeks? Well, that's keeping a record of rights in a sense, right? I've done all these right things to sort of cancel out these wrongs perhaps. It's also, if I can just say pastorally, something I see, and I do doing premarital and marital counseling, this is, this is a good piece of advice, okay? Uh, it's finding out how your spouse loves to be loved and love them that way. Because what's our tendency? Is to love our spouses in the way we like to be loved. And you just assume that they're the same way. You assume since you're a words of affirmation person, they're a words of affirmation person. They may not be. They may want to be loved and feel that comfort and strength from you in a completely different way. Honey, what do I do? Or what are the things you would like for me to do that make you feel most loved by me and supported and strengthened? Because it isn't, just as we said last week, it's not just about not murdering somebody. It's about loving and caring for them. For your spouse, it's not just, well, I don't commit adultery. Well, that's, that's good. That is good. How do you support them and love them and cherish them? Secondly is the sanctity of speech. You can probably see how these two passages are somewhat connected. You made promises and vows and a covenant right? It related to marriage, and now are you going to keep that relative to your speech here? The rabbis were permissive in their attitude to divorce and permissive in their attitude towards promises that you make. Here's essentially what they were teaching. If you swore by God to do something, you got to do it. If you swore by the temple or by your head or something, uh, we, can, we can work out of this one, right? That, you don't necessarily have to do that. You know, there's, it, so it wasn't a matter of what you said, it was a matter of the formula you used. Here's the formula that's completely binding, and here's the other ones that you can go back and say, well, I, my fingers were crossed behind my back, right? So you, we, can, we can wiggle out of this. The oaths and vows are in question. You know, some Christian traditions have taken this passage to suggest that Christians must not make vows and oaths. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I'm, I think he's saying Christians shouldn't have to. It's Christian, well, I can't trust you, so I'm going to make you make a vow so that I can hold you to it. That's, that's the corrective here. It's not that we shouldn't do our baptismal vows and membership vows. No, that's all fine. 
You just shouldn't have to in order to keep your word. So the application for us is going to be much bigger than just oaths and formal vows that we make. It's, is your yes, yes, and your no, no. See, the Pharisees, they developed all these elaborate rules that sound so theological, but they're just manipulation, aren't they? It's just how I don't have to do what I said I was going to do, and I can take advantage of people. Jesus emphasizes that Christians don't need to resort to oaths, though they may make them. Oaths and vows are everywhere in our culture. I know you know this. Our our president is sworn in at the steps of the U.S. Capitol. He makes vows to lead us well. Supreme Court justices, we will uphold the Constitution, right? And that's great. It's, It's good for us to have such ceremonies. It's good for our new members to stand up here and, and give their membership vows to us, right? It, it's, it's fine to have a wedding where we are promising, not just in front of these witnesses, but before God himself, what we're going to do. Israel had trivialized these things. Yes, I will do that. That's all that someone needs to hear. That's, it ought to be good as done. No, I will not do that anymore. That's all that should need to be said, Jesus is saying. It's just dishonest. This was theology masquerading as lying, really. Can your word be trusted? When you say that you're going to do something, does that mean you're going to do it? And the person that hears you say that, they know they can trust your word. Or do they feel as if, Andy, do you promise? Do you promise you're going to do that? Because they can't really trust what you've said in the past. I want you to promise you're going to do that. That shouldn't be necessary for us as Christians. These two great points that Christ is making here is to recognize, one, that we are to be honest, but two, we are a representative of God himself when we speak. As many commentators suggest that this command is closely connected with not taking the Lord's name in vain. I am his child. I am speaking, in a sense, on his behalf. If I am dishonest, it reflects negatively upon my church. It reflects negatively upon God himself. All of our speech should be seen as sacred, not just the promises we make. Can people trust me? Or am I typically known for someone who embellishes and exaggerates and misleads and and all the rest? You know, I think emails and text messages and social media posts make this a huge temptation. Don't you seem to pop your mouth off more in a text message than you do when you're talking to someone face-to-face? I'm going to say this a little bit ruder. I'm going I'm to, I'm gonna, hey, can you come tonight? And I'm going to, well, I'm going to give this answer in this text message. It kind of makes it sound like I might do either one, right? I'm going to mislead intentionally. This is what we're talking about here. We can do this even when, when we're talking about... I see this a lot, unfortunately, even in the PCA. Someone writes a blog post about someone else in the denomination. Hey, this person preached on this particular topic, and they said this, but what they implied was this. You don't know what they implied. All you've got is the text of what they said. Don't come out on your blog and say, well, they implied this, and therefore, you know, they're trying to run us down into liberalism in the PCA. Give me a break. Just entertain what they said. 
rather than you just know infallibly what they actually were implying in that particular word they said. It's speaking truthfully and accurately of other people. We can get drugged down, I think, sometimes into a culture of suspicion because that's the culture in which we live. We're all suspicious of each other. The cause of truth is always more important than its consequences. So how do these commands point us to Christ? Well, the application, honestly, is very similar to last Sunday's sermon. His grace is sufficient for you. Yes, you do struggle in these ways. We don't always value and cherish our spouses as we ought to. We don't always speak accurately. We do try to mislead. We do try to misinform. We do hurt people with our words, don't we? But what did Christ do? What is the model of our Savior? We, the church, are the bride of Christ, and Christ is not constantly seeking how to get out of the relationship with us. Despite our unfaithfulness, despite our chasing after idols that we so often do, He's not seeking a way out of this. He wants to love us. He reminds us, I will never leave you or forsake you. He reminds us, doesn't He, that what I started in you, I will see it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. What a wonderful spouse we have in Christ. We are his bride, and he loves us and cares for us. So we look to him to know how we are going to do this accurately in our lives. I don't naturally have this. These sermons are never meant to suggest to you, come on, willpower, you've got it. No, his grace is sufficient for you. It's sufficient for your marriage. It's sufficient for the words that you use and all the rest. Are you perfect? Of course you're not. Are you going to struggle with this to some degree the rest of your life? Yes. And when you do, you run back to Christ. Christ, I need your grace. I need your help. And then you run back out and you, and you, and you do what, the best you can in the power of the Holy Spirit, seeking to rely on that grace. Deliver me, O Lord, from my continuing desire to not follow your commands. And give me your grace. You know, I just, I love the exchange that Jesus has with Peter on the beach in John 21. There's so many different angles to that conversation. As Peter has just recently denied Jesus three times, and now, you know, there's some symmetry here, of course. He's now going to affirm his love and his devotion unto Jesus for three times. And Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Well, then tend my lambs and feed my sheep. And the last time, Peter, do you love me? And it, it sort of it troubles Peter that Jesus would ask him this a third time. Yes, Lord, you know that I do. Ah, you know that I do. You know the answer to the question, Jesus. Why do you keep asking this of me? You know what's in my heart. You know, these commands Jesus is suggesting to us, you can fake it. You can. You can appear as if you are doing these things correctly. And yet the Lord knows your heart because that's what he's after anyway. He wants your love and he wants your affection. Westminster, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. Can that be said of you? Or does it just kind of look like you do? The outside of the cup is fantastic and the inside is wasting away. If you asked him for that forgiveness, if you ask him for that grace that indeed is sufficient for you, 
Westminster, do you love me? He wants to hear, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, you know that I do. And you continually seek his grace. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your love to us. We thank you for the loving kindness that never ends and it never stops. And, Lord, because of that love you've given to us, that we would go and do likewise. Lord, would you strengthen our marriages? Would you help us to realize that your grace is sufficient for us and that we would desire to show grace for our spouse? Lord, would you heal us of the hurt that we have from divorce? Would you, Lord, help us to speak good and accurate words to others, knowing that we not only to do that so that we would be honest, but we do that as your ambassadors, Lord, that would reflect, reflect positively upon you. Lord, we thank you for how you care for us, how you forgive us by your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? And then remain standing as we sing the doxology. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace, now and forevermore. Amen. Praise God from all saints
Thank you for listening. For the sermon archive, go to wpcjc.org forward slash resources forward slash sermon hyphen archive. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible, English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers, used by permission, all rights reserved. ESV texts may not be quoted in any publication made available to the public by a Creative Commons license. ESV may not be translated in whole or in part into any other language. Verbal credit must also be given to the ESV.